Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that often put her in the right place at the right time. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the motley family of outsiders consisting of bikers, musicians, hippies, and beatniks that she assembled in and out of San Francisco. 20 more would be the number of feet into the air she found herself ascending the night she bore witness to the one and only Otis Redding. Another two would be the number of Hell's Angels out on bail who received a hero's welcome in the panhandle with a soundtrack courtesy of Big Brother and the holding company. One more would be the number of second chances she would get to wow a crowd in Monterey and have her performance immortalized on film for the entire world to see. And three other would be the number of years she had left to live after George Harrison paid a visit to her city by the bay, only to find the sun setting on the so-called summer of love. On this, our third episode of season three, Fateful Nights, Hell's Angels, Second Chances, The Quiet Beetle and Janis Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
December, 1966, San Francisco. Janis Joplin didn't feel like herself. She felt like she was outside of her own body, like she was observing her own existence. She wasn't even sure if she was Janis Joplin anymore. And on the one hand, it was a good thing that she didn't feel like herself, didn't sound like herself when she spoke, that maybe she didn't even look like herself anymore. Because she was back at the Fillmore Auditorium, the place she'd been tossed out of not so long ago. She felt like she was betraying some unspoken rule by being there in the first place. Okay, so the rule was admittedly spoken. Bill Graham had practically screamed at her loud enough for the whole fucking block to hear when he wouldn't let her pass the front door. So this whole incognito trip, maybe it was for the best. But it was a trip all the same. A trip that she hadn't intended to take. And that's what was on the other hand. That was the flip side of the whole situation she found herself in. Fumbling her way to a seat near the front of the auditorium while keeping a lookout in every direction for the inevitable hands of Bill Graham screeching in towards her like eagle talons. An unexpected LSD trip. She had knocked back vigorous swigs of cold duck earlier that evening. The fizzy fruit wine tasted cheap. Janice wasn't above cheap, quite the contrary. But each swig was another she'd come to regret when the sugar and alcohol had their way with her head the following morning. Little did she know a hangover would be the least of her concerns. This magnum bottle of cold duck passed around the apartment room from hand to hand. Musician to musician, beatnik to beatnik, this motherfucker had been straight up dosed. Janice didn't know it at first. She didn't know it until after the first few hauls when someone in the room said, shit, it doesn't taste like 68 doses, man. Someone else responded, I counted a man, every single one that we dropped in there, 68 doses of Augustus Owsley Stanley's finest. 68 doses. The cold duck was spiked with 68 doses of LSD. These fucking hippies, Janice thought, running to the bathroom to see if she could puke up what she had just consumed. Not tonight. They weren't bringing her down tonight, these fucking hippies in their surprise doses. That's how it was done. Acid was sprung on the unsuspecting. That's how the CIA did it in 1953 when they handed military scientist Frank Olson a glass of orange liqueur. He jumped out the window. And that's how the dentist John Riley did it in 1965 when he handed John Lennon and George Harrison some cups of coffee. They wrote a song about it, but they called him Dr. Robert. And that's how the Grateful Dead did it in 1969 when they visited the Playboy Mansion and the swingers all swung a little bit harder. Janice fell down to her knees in front of the toilet and stuck two fingers down the back of her throat. She retched and some of the cold duck came roaring back and splattered inside the toilet bowl. Her mouth tasted bitter, her head spun. She flushed it down, washed her face, and hoped that she had purged the LSD from her system. She had no control on LSD. And on a night like this night, a night when she planned to go back to the Fillmore and see Otis Redding perform yet again, she needed control, clarity. She needed to be present. She got there early every night during Otis's run. She staked her claim up front. She was a student. She soaked up every shake, every shimmy, every note, every time Otis would go from quiet to loud to quiet again. And she did it incognito. She did it with control. She dreaded running into Bill Graham again. She was hopeful the time had healed all wounds, that Bill was no longer pissed about the lack of love she gave his venue in that interview. And she knew Bill was all talk. He liked to puff his chest out, do the manly thing, remind her that she was a woman in a man's world, that she didn't call the shots. Please. She knew all about a man's world. And she knew how to navigate it. She knew how to get back into the venue she'd been tossed from. Plus, Bill had better things to do than man a sentry post just to peep her. 
Her plan, once she was inside, was to be a sponge for a few nights in a row. Get down the Otis thing, learn Otis, speak Otis, be Otis. And then she'd be back. She'd be back at Bill Graham's Fillmore as the star of the show. And she would show him what a woman could do. She would make him regret the way he treated her. And he would be so embarrassed that he wouldn't even mention that day that he yelled at her. Janice would turn the tables on him and she'd be one of the people who defined that rickety old auditorium. Bill Graham would be lucky to have her. But she needed to do the sponge thing first, learn from the master. And that required her attention and her control. On this night, she hadn't either. By the time she got to the venue, again, she was early, the LSD was kicking in. She hadn't been able to throw it all up after all. It was taking control of her now. Each step she made towards the door of the Fillmore resounded through her body. Vibrations that ricocheted up from her heels, her thighs, her waist. They made her want to move to twist and bounce and shake them all out of her body. She stepped inside the venue and felt another seismic vibration run up her legs and her arms. And that's when she realized she was no longer inside her own body. She was hovering above herself, above the crowd that was still small but starting to grow larger. And she was so far up, she nearly touched the ceiling. It was a total loss of control. She knew it would happen, not how it would happen, but she knew the acid would fuck with her somehow. She had lost total control over her physical body, and the vibrations had been just the beginning. Now she was up above, floating in place, unseeable, unknowable, and her body did what it was going to do down below, whether she liked it or not. The out-of-body situation did have its perks, however. From her vantage point, she could search the room for Bill. She could spy him from afar and then somehow warn her physical body below. She tried to make contact with her physical body, with her mind. She thought to herself, hey you, hey, hey, hey me. She thought it real loud, real loud in her mind. She hoped her physical body would look to her left and her right, trying to figure out where the telepathy was coming from. And then hovering Janice would think real hard again, no dummy up here, I'm up here. But physical Janice never looked around to indicate that she was receiving the drug-induced ESP. She just quietly made her way to her usual seat, a few rows from the front, so that she was close enough to the stage but didn't stand out like a sitting duck for Bill Graham's crosshairs. When Otis came on stage with Booker T and the MGs, Janice received the swampy Memphis Soul Communion with psychedelic eyes. She watched him from below in her seat and watched him from up above, hovering. She felt the bass below and the highs up top. Physical Janice heard the music Otis's way and hovering Janice heard the music her way. Outside of her own body, she heard R&B run through her San Francisco filter by way of Texas. R&B that had been soaked in a bottle of cold duck with 68 doses of LSD. And that's what she would deliver. She would perfect her own brand of psychedelic R&B. But first, she had to come down from this trip, become whole again, regain control while she had the chance, create the musical persona. She would lose control again. It was inevitable. And next time, it would be darker and a lot more dangerous than an out-of-body acid trip. Chocolate George Hendricks grabbed hold of the throttle with his right hand to give his bike a goose. The Harley opened right up. The unmistakable sound of metallic flatulence. 
George felt the bike vibrate between his legs and the whinny of an iron horse. And the horse backfired and the sound ricocheted through the ears of every unsuspecting bystander. George's long beard was swept back by the wind when the bike quickly shot forward before resuming its leisurely pace. The pins and buttons affixed to his sleeveless jean jacket rattled. He was flanked on either side by other Hells Angels, other outlaws on bikes. It was a sea of bikes, a symphony of engine revs and backfires and sputtering. His helmet looked like something from the shores of Normandy, like he was ready for battle, flanked by this battalion of MC brothers. But he was returning from a battle, not marching into it. This was their victory march, a parade of solidarity. He'd been taken hostage by the other side, the state-sanctioned side, the cops. He'd been taken hostage with his brother, Harry Henry Cott, and spent the night in the other side's crummy jail cell, where they were leered at by a bunch of crew-cut-wearing Jocko fuckos. But now they were free, and now they'd celebrate. As the dawn rose on the long gestating summer of love, the hippies weren't the only ones that the cops were after in San Francisco. SFPD wasn't just busting up acid test parties. They were on the prowl for anyone who looked, sounded, smelled, or thought differently. They arrested Ron Thielen for reading the poetry of Jacques Prevé on the steps of City Hall. And they arrested Ama Jester Fleming for wearing an American flag. And they arrested puppeteers in the middle of a show on a street corner. They arrested Phyllis Wilner for standing up on the back of Harry Henry Cott's motorcycle. And then they arrested Chocolate George when he came running to help. It was December 1966, Haight Street. Phyllis was a teen runaway from Jamaica, Queens. She got to San Francisco on the back of a motorcycle. The diggers handed out free food in the panhandle. They called money an unnecessary evil. They distributed flyers encouraging the citizens of San Francisco to surrender their money, which would then be distributed all Chairman Mao-like. And now the diggers were organizing a parade that would ring in the new year, but also signal the death of money and the rebirth of the hate. Phyllis arrived with a snow-white cape draped around her shoulders. She jumped on the back of Harry Henry's Harley, dug her left hand into his shoulder, and extended her right hand straight into the air. Free, she yelled into the wind as Harry Henry made his Harley hum and hiss. Free! The cops threw on their lights. They pulled Harry Henry over. They said they were charging him for allowing a person to stand up while driving a motor vehicle. They didn't have time for the angels' bullshit or the hippies' bullshit either. Harry Henry was in trouble. A bigger kind of trouble than simply letting a girl in a flowing white cape ride on the back of his bike. He was in violation of his parole from San Quentin. He'd go downtown, get real cozy with the inside of a jail cell, trade his sparkling chrome for some rusty steel. Chocolate George saw a brother in peril. He jumped into action. He swung his bike around and went to Harry Henry's rescue. But even though, like most angels, he had a soft side, Chocolate George went full crazy batshit biker on the pigs. And the pigs offered him a seat next to his good pal on the inside of the San Francisco Police Department headquarters. It was the diggers that bailed the boys out. The activist group took a break from handing out free food in the panhandle, passed the hat for some of that evil US currency, and then put it to good use. Like the good old merry men they were, not merry pranksters. They bailed out Chocolate George and Harry Henry from jail. Pete Nell, president of the San Francisco chapter of the Hells Angels, said the motorcycle club would never forget the gesture, never forget what the diggers and the hippies did for them that day. The angels would show their appreciation the way they knew how. They'd throw a party. 
And that was where Chocolate George and the rest of the angels were on their way to that day, New Year's Day, 1967. As they rode their bikes triumphantly through the city, the panhandle near the Golden Gate Park, they were free, and their incarcerated Iron Horse brothers had been set free, and the ensuing party was heavy on bikes, booze, recently criminalized illicit substances, and music. They called it the New Year's Whale, that's W-A-I-L, a real Wang Dang Doodle affair. And who better, the angels thought, to provide the soundtrack to their freedom and the ongoing revolution than Big Brother and the Holding Company? Who better, Chocolate George had said as he took a Hulk-sized sip of vodka-spiked chocolate milk to sing out loud for the whole city to hear than Janis Joplin, the Hells Angels' little sister, the one who accepted them for who they were. Outsiders, rule breakers, lawbenders, pig provokers. She was all of those things herself. A Port Arthur, Texas girl who railed against Port Arthur, Texas things. She wasn't a biker. She didn't wear sleeveless denim jackets or crank the throttle of a steel hog. But she rebelled the way the angels rebelled. And she wanted to live her life the way they lived theirs, wild, untethered from the past, out in the open, free. The angels were above the law. They were against the law. They would make some questionable choices in their time. Their freedom would run a little too rampant. Their choices would sometimes result in destruction, even death, even the death of a fan, a fan of the music, at a speedway 60 miles east of the bay. But Janice always forgave. Janice stuck by their side, a fellow outsider trying to get free. In return, the Angels didn't just offer her band gigs, plentiful gigs for that matter, when the bigwigs in town like Bill Graham threw her ass out on the street, but the Angels offered her protection. Janice was looked after, taken care of, sheltered. It was like a family, really, a family that was handmade by those who were part of it, a motley crew of musicians and beatniks and bikers. And Big Brother took the ragtag family maxim to the extreme and, following the lead of the Grateful Dead, moved into a cottage together outside Lagunitas in Marin County. It was tucked away in a redwood forest, almost an hour outside of the city, and they rented the place from the ex-wife of a forest ranger. They called it Argentina because a propane tank nearby bore graffiti that read, quote, Carlos is alive and well in Argentina, whatever the hell that meant. Janice and Big Brother found the kind of resistance from the locals in Lagunitas that they had previously found in Chicago and Nebraska. Up north, they were just some more wayfaring druggy dropouts. The farther they went from San Francisco, the harder it was to live that liberation lifestyle. And so they spent their time making their family of freaks and outsiders bigger hanging with the Angels and with other bands who lived communally, like the Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service, who shacked up together in Olima. At the Dead's compound, Janice gravitated towards Ron McKernan, the guy they called Pigpen, a nickname given to him due to his funky approach to life and sanitation. Pigpen was the badass member of the Grateful Dead, the one who started drinking around age 12 when he bought whiskey off of a bootlegger for a buck fifty a gallon. Like Janice, he was knee-deep in whatever blues music he could get his hands on. He watched old blues players in the clubs of Palo Alto as a kid and then picked up a harp and a guitar and tried to do it himself. He was the only member of the dead that you could mistakenly peg for a member of the Hells Angels. The devilish facial hair, the corduroy cowboy hat, the jean jacket adorned with pins and buttons, and the long dark hair kept at bay by a thick patterned headband. But beneath the gruff exterior, pig pen, was a softie and a sweetheart. Janice fell for him, hard. She loved the gruff exterior. She loved the sweet interior. She wanted the good and the bad, the musician and the hell's angel. Pigpen was all of that. 
Big Brother and the Dead would engage in another of their communal life hang sessions, and Janice and Pigpen would make their way into the corner of the room like there was no one else there, and they'd pass the bottle of Southern Comfort back and forth. And then they'd sneak off to Pigpen's room, and there wasn't much privacy in a communal home shared by a large band with an even larger entourage. And Bob Weir immortalized their not-so-secret romance in Looks Like Rain. And from the Angels to Argentina, Janice was expanding her world, branching out beyond the confines of the hate. The family that she was cultivating was expanding too. And then, on a weekend in June 1967, in the seaside town of Monterey, a serpentine shot down coastal Route 1 from the bay, and Janice's reach went viral worldwide. Soon, everyone would see in Janice the exact things that Chocolate George and Pigpen saw. That psychedelic R&B she gleaned from Otis. Even those snobs from way over yonder in Los Angeles would want to be a member of her outside her party. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 
I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mama Cass Elliot wasn't a stranger to Revelation. The moments that came out of nowhere, from a stage, from the sky. The moments that literally changed everything forever. She had one of those moments in the summer of 1965, somewhere in the Virgin Islands. Cass was just standing there, singing, when the pipe fell from the ceiling. It came loose, some thin metal piece of plumbing, and went straight down, direct hit. Cass was the fourth and newest member of the Mamas and the Papas, a vocal group built from the ashes of the new journeymen in the Mugwumps. Real folk diehard types. She decamped to a little slice of paradise with her bandmates, John and Michelle Phillips and Denny Doherty, to work out their harmonies, give the new songs a spin, get their shit together before they left the East Coast for California. And they wanted to shed their old folk music skin, go electric, jump on Dylan's 180 train while seats were still available, and be a part of history. John had just the song. It was a call and response. Cass's parts echoed the main lyric. It sounded prophetic, like the song itself was a crystal ball. It wasn't just about California, it was about a new day, a new sound, a new coast, a new reality. And the foursome delivered the refrain in chilling minor key harmonies. It was downright spooky in its beauty. Cass felt the chill run up her back as their voices locked in. She knew she had the strongest voice in the group. And despite John's reservations, she knew that the real reason that John gave her so much shit about her weight and her oversized personality was really just because he was jealous of her voice. He was scared of her voice. So she let it ring out loud and clear during the song's final repeated line to impress John, but also to scare him some more. And then the pipe came down on her head. They were rehearsing in a club which was under renovation. A plumber in the rafters above had knocked a piece of piping loose. It fell hard and fast. As soon as it landed on her head, Cass hit the floor. Song over, Cass over. She was down. She was out. And when she woke up in the hospital, she discovered that she had suffered a concussion, but she discovered something else, too. Her voice. It went higher. Suddenly, her range was increased by a few notes. The very thing that had knocked her to the ground had, in fact, made her stronger. Cass's life was like that, full of happy accidents. She learned to cultivate those revelatory moments. She made a place for them to happen, opened her door and let them in. Her house in the Laurel Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles became a regular hangout for the droves of musicians who were making the mountainous terrain their own creative sandpit. Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Mickey Dolenz, Eric Clapton, they came from all over, 
Filled ashtrays, passed bottles, passed joints, swam in the pool, worked out new songs. Laurel Canyon was an entire culture built around creating those moments. And then at the Monterey International Pop Festival in Monterey, California in June 1967, Cass had another moment. It wasn't a pipe from a ceiling, but it knocked her out just the same. It was Janis Joplin. Cass's jaw dropped when Janice and Big Brother took the stage and squeezed the blues out of Big Mama Thornton's ball and chain. It wasn't just Big Brother's raw treatment of the blues or the way their brand of R&B was drenched in Bay Area psych. It was Janice. She was electrified. She was possessed. She shouted, hollered, stomped her heel down on the stage, let her throat just rip apart with anguish and pain. And the band unspooled behind her, the guitars flowing like unruly hippie hair. And then, without notice, the whole stage tightened up. Got quiet real quick. Janice's voice was no longer ravaged. It was tame and intimate. And then, the unraveling happened again. Janice's body was taken over. She shook. She grabbed the mic like she was using it to stabilize herself and stuttered loudly, turning the stutter into a hook, turning it into baby. She had taken Otis Redding's own moves, the dynamics of his performance, and made them her own. She was trying to out Otis, Otis, who just happened to be one of the more than 30 performers at the three-day festival that weekend in June. And Cass's jaw didn't leave the ground. The song ended and she was still in shock. She had witnessed something, one of those moments. The whole audience was shook. And it was a moment that was nearly lost to history. The Monterey International Pop Festival is best known as the place where Americans were first introduced to the Jimi Hendrix experience, The Who and Ravi Shankar, but it was also the first time that artists like Janice and Otis became household names. Organizers hired D.A. Pennebaker, the documentary filmmaker behind the 1965 Dylan flick Don't Look Back, to make a movie of the weekend. Janice and Big Brother were there as part of the San Francisco contingent, which included the dead and Jefferson Airplane. But the Los Angeles contingent ran the show. John Phillips helped organize Monterey Pop from his office in LA. LA was another galaxy as far as San Franciscans were concerned. Buffalo Springfield, The Doors, Love, they were all sunset strip bands. They said they were hippies, but they had that neon city glow. The San Francisco contingent was so weary of the L.A. scenesters that they refused to allow Pennebaker's crew to film them in Monterey Pop. Pennebaker had cred. Monterey Pop would get the raw, unfiltered Pennebaker treatment. And no one had beef with Pennebaker. It was the Los Angelinos, those shifty-eyed motherfuckers running the show. They weren't hippies. They were rich hippies. They were the establishment now. But they were still playing the part of the anti-establishment. To the San Franciscans, John Phillips and his L.A. crew were fast talkers, city slickers, hucksters. They weren't going to let themselves get greased by the fucking mamas and the papas. Julius Carpin said no. He told D.A. Pennebaker to shut the cameras off. He said that Janice was off limits. He wouldn't sign the release form unless John Phillips wanted to cough up some dough or give the band creative control over the footage. He said that he'd sue if they didn't do as he asked. Or maybe he'd break all the fucking cameras altogether. Maybe he'd do both. Julius was ex-Mary Prankster, former Ken Kesey crony. Big Brother hired him in early 67 as their new manager, a long-time coming replacement for Chet Holmes. Inspired by the Pranksters and their further bus, they got a 1952 Cadillac hearse to haul their gear. Julius made sure the band had wheels, a few roadies to throw equipment around, expertly rolled joints to toke. But at Monterey, Janice wasn't smoking what Julius was smoking. When she found out that the cameras weren't rolling during Big Brother's performance, she was bullshit. 
She got in Julius's face and asked what this fucking problem was, and Julius wouldn't budge. The festival promoters, John Phillips and his LA cronies, had made nearly a half a million dollar deal with the filmmakers. Big Brother wasn't seeing one cent. It was a non-starter for Julius. John Phillips offered Big Brother a second slot on Sunday, the final end of the festival, if they would agree to be filmed. Janice ran into Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager, and asked for his advice. The band was nervous. Janice talking to Grossman reminded them of Janice talking to Electra Records. They were terrified that Janice would big time them. But all she wanted was for Grossman to tell Julius to fuck off. Instead, Grossman gave her the confidence to tell Julius herself. She got in Julius's face again, threatened his employment, told him she would fire his ass right there and then if he didn't agree to John Phillips's offer. Julius was rattled. Janice was making a scene. Julius relented. He allowed it. And Big Brother played a second set on Sunday night. And from that set, Ball and Chain became a star-making showstopper in Pennebaker's film. But the damage had been done. Tensions were once again high in the Big Brother camp. The tension between Janice and Julius was palpable, and now it was starting to affect the band as a whole. Everyone was nervous, suspicious, paranoid, unhappy. It was an uneasy feeling that was about to ripple through San Francisco, despite its idyllic summer of love, and hit Janice where it hurt. August, 1967. Word traveled fast in the hate. Storefront to storefront, from the doorway of the psychedelic shop to the wild west of the panhandle where the diggers handed out food. From the corner of the Fillmore to the middle of the Golden Gate Park. There's a beetle in the hate. No shit. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was still brand new. A British take on the psychedelic sounds coming from America. It was a perfect complement to the now official Summer of Love, as Chet Helms and others had crowned the summer of 1967 in a press conference in May. And now, one of its authors, the man behind the transcendental within you, without you, was just taking a leisurely stroll through the streets of San Francisco. People on the street made eye contact and then made their voice heard, that's George Harrison. There was no denying it. It was the quiet beetle, in the flesh, his mop top gone trapo, Lonely Heart's mustache below. Even more breathtaking was Patty Boyd, George's wife, who walked by his side. A group of locals assembled as they walked. They wanted autographs, hugs, advice. They wanted to hear a song. And the group of people became large enough that at some point it crossed over to a mob. And then the mob became large enough that it could no longer move down the street as one. So it had to stop. And then it began to close in on George. George was stuck in the middle, watching eyes expand and contract and bug out in his general direction. Hands reached out to touch him, to glean some sort of wisdom through physical contact, to hand him a book, pass on some incense, give him a joint or a dose. He was weary of it all. And the dosers, the dropouts, the hippies, the whole scene was curdling right before his eyes. The kids started to grab for him, lunge at him, hands holding out books and joints and doses became claws that swung and missed. Voices that made requests for songs became accusatory insults when he wouldn't swallow their particular pill. This self-medicated land of life-affirming creative liberation, one that George and the boys had admired from afar and felt an emotional and creative connection with, crumbled all around him. 
All that was left was a bunch of needy kids stoned and baked and fried, grasping and groaning like zombies. It was all too much. George needed to escape. He needed to find a way out before they turned on him. He feared that whatever was happening in the hate had already happened and that he was too late. That same summer, the summer of love, Janice Joplin's parents, Seth and Dorothy Joplin, flew from Texas to San Francisco to visit their daughter. They wanted to see where she lived, who she was hanging out with, the band she was playing with, and they were far from thrilled. The life she was leading was too free, too unstructured. Like George Harrison, they too feared that they had arrived in San Francisco too late. For different reasons, they disapproved of Janice's cheap apartment, the pictures on her wall. Every picture was the same picture, one the photographer Bob Seidemann had taken of her that year. In it, she wore only beads, most of which covered her breasts. Her hands were strategically placed directly below her waist. The shot didn't bother her. She loved it. It empowered her. In fact, she had been the one to suggest to Bob that she not wear any clothes. But she didn't tell her parents that fact. Seeing the naked picture of their daughter was shocking enough. Seth turned his head while Dorothy put her hands over her eyes of Janice's 14-year-old brother Michael, who had joined them on the trip, along with Janice's 18-year-old sister Laura. Sensing the disapproval in the apartment room, Janice took them all to the Avalon, where she asked the guys in Moby Grape if Big Brother could slip in during their set to play a few tunes for her folks. Laura and Michael were in awe of their big sister on stage with that larger-than-life voice, giving directions to an entirely male band. She was their sister, but in that moment, she was also their idol. Seth and Dorothy weren't as impressed. Janice could tell. It was the same moment with her parents, the one where she tried to impress them, tried to please them, tried to show them that she was free now. She was going to be just fine, but they didn't believe her. And the Joplins cut out for Texas and Janice was left feeling dejected. She had failed them again, just like the last time and the time before. She was always failing them. And so she dealt with the sting of rejection the way she had in the past. Her past haunted her. Her past was always there waiting until she lost control one more time. Then she'd turn herself into one of those San Francisco zombies, if only for a day or a night or a week or a month. She'd numb herself with what she could get her hands on. The darker, the better. The more cavernous dwelling the high was, the better. And after all, it was summertime, and the living was supposed to be easy. Soon, she'd find that cavern in her mind, and she'd get there straight with a shot of junk that was darker and harder than any of the petrol-tainted STP acid that was going around. She would think about her parents leaving San Francisco for Port Arthur, and then she'd start to nod off. As she drifted into a thick, gooey heroin high, she couldn't help but think about the last time she was a disappointment to her parents. That time when she first came to San Francisco and discovered that she couldn't handle it, couldn't hang. That time she liberated herself all wrong. That time she ran back to Port Arthur, 85 pounds soaking wet, strung out on meth, wondering what the hell she was going to do with her life. Wondering if she would ever be free. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Alright, this episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. 
Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.